Folks, I just wanted to let you know that places are filling up fast for the spring class of your self-belief map. This is my group program that's based on my research into self-doubt. Uh, I'm sharing with you some proven approaches and tools and resources uh, to help you navigate through your self-doubt. We go through a really structured and safe methodology where I help you to make sense of why you have self-doubt in the ways that it shows up for you in particular, to really make sense of that and to understand some of the unconscious beliefs that you have carried through to adulthood that make your self-doubt necessary. Uh, past participants rave about the program. It is totally my favorite place to be in terms of this work. I would love to support you if self-doubt is holding you back. So do check out your self-belief map. The links are on the Courage and Spice website. Welcome to Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'm your host, Sass Petherick, and I am so glad you're here. Folks, I am with Mara Glatzel, who is one of my favorite humans. And she is an intuitive coach and writer, and she teaches women how to reclaim and celebrate their power and brilliance. Her work is so rich and deep, and we've worked together for years. So I'm kind of excited about introducing Mara's work to you, and if you already know of her, to kind of take this into uh, a new a new place. Uh, so Mara guides women home to themselves. She believes that each and every one of us is the expert of our own experience. Uh, and she's all about helping people to become vibrant, well-nourished, lit up, creative, sexually charged, tenderly ambitious. Um, and at the core of her work is this desire to help women live a really well-intentioned life. If you're not already following her on Instagram, you want to get yourself over there. Um, I'm just so excited that we are chatting, Mara. Hello. Hello. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. This is fun. This is fun. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to open with how, uh, to, well, with understanding a bit more about how you came to this work. Like, what did you learn about self-belief growing up? Well, it's really interesting because as I was thinking about this question this morning, I was thinking that I was, I was raised, there was this like kind of upper, upper level surface level of messaging around the fact that I was amazing and brilliant and wonderful and I could do anything and we can all do anything. And that my household was really positive in that way. My parents were really encouraging in that way. And I definitely benefited from that feeling of just believing that I had something to contribute to the world. Mm -hmm. But that was the surface level, right? And, and ostensibly that existed. Um, but underneath it, there was also this undercurrent of believing that I, you know, I was never thin. I struggled with my weight over the course of my childhood. That was always a really big thing. You know, I was always going to doctors and nutritionists and the gym and, you know, it was, it was a big thing. I was bullied about it. And 
so even though there was that surface level of information and I did believe in my own capacity to impact the world around me, I simultaneously was apologizing for myself with every word, with every step, with every action, um, really believing that I was lucky for any attention that I was given, that I owed a debt for that attention. And so I think that my self-belief was caught in between these polarities because on the one hand, I believed in myself, but on the other hand, there was this dark shadow side that felt really tender and it felt as though um, I needed to earn my place with a lot of work, which was, which was, and is exhausting. Yeah. That's how I'm feeling like hearing that, like it must've been quite confusing as well. Yeah. Because these two, polarities existed simultaneously and I was aware of them, but they didn't, they didn't match, you know, they didn't match up. It didn't all work together. Mm -hmm. And so I would find myself kind of confused about why things were so hard Mm -hmm. or why I was so sensitive or why I felt so emotional or so needy. And, you know, because there was this shadow part of me that was just exhausting herself trying to do a really, really, really good job to keep myself safe, to earn my place in the world, to earn, you know, much later my place in my romantic relationships. And it was like this little engine that was constantly whirring and eventually really burnt out. And it sounds like the the perfect way to prepare for your work in the world now. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, they say that we teach what we needed to learn, what we need to learn repeatedly. And I feel I love my work. And part of that has to do with the fact that I'm so intimately connected to it. Mm. And that I, I understand it from the inside. You know, it's it is it is so easy to say, well, just take care of yourself. We have all of these self-care listicles outlining the many ways that we could take, could and should take care of ourselves. There, you know, are all these glossy self-care Instagram posts that we try to twist ourselves into. And there's this disconnect between what we know we could do and what we think we should do and what we are actually doing. And that's, I mean, I think that that's why my work is different Um, and also why it's compelling to me, at least, is finding women in that gap and really doing that work of redefining what it means to care for yourself in a way that centers the individual and not this litany of things. You know, the, the, the world is so noisy. There's a many, many, many people who are trying to tell us about ourselves all the time. And there's something so powerful about reclaiming that sovereignty and really doing that work of, of bouncing every question back to yourself. 
Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked a lot at length, right, about this resistance that we feel to taking care of ourselves um, and to tending to our own needs, that the, the, the thought of being needy is something you and I have both talked about around how difficult we find that and yet how necessary and human it is to have needs and to have them taken care of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it strikes me just listening to you that I think that's where our work kind of crosses over is this this concept of what self-trust really looks and feels like. Um, I wonder if you can talk a bit about that. Like what have you found in your work that are the kind of foundations of self-trust? Well, I found that that feeling of why can't I just trust myself is really disempowering for humans who are trying to build self-trust. And it can be difficult to see unless you are educated or have, you know, do some researchers to have some, some education around the many, many, many systems that are at work that benefit from you not trusting yourself. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it is operating all of the time. And if we go from, we start thinking from when we're children, that this relationship, this power dynamic is set up where the parent's opinion is primary and the child's opinion is secondary. And to a certain extent, I see this now because I have a small child, I I completely understand why for safety reasons and all of that, why that is, is set up. But, you know, it, it primes you for looking for the answers externally. Mm -hmm. And that there is the entire capitalist system is set up to benefit from our productivity, to benefit from our lack of self-trust, lack of self-appreciation and self-love, to sell us things after telling us that we're a problem to be fixed. And you know, this is markedly different for women than it is for men. It's markedly different for uh, people who grow up of a lower income class than for a higher, for people who are people of color. I mean, all of these identities further impact whether what the messages are that we're receiving as we grow up about how much we can trust ourselves. Yeah. And and I'm I'm thinking about this idea of being primed from a very young age to seek the answers externally and often from an external source of presumed authority. Mm-hmm. And I and I see this so much in my own work around, you know, people getting kind of caught up and sometimes a bit lost in research and rumination about, you know, just making relatively simple decisions that it's like, I need to find the right answer, which kind of fuels into these narratives of perfectionism and, and you know, where we get answers from, which is often the last place we look is within ourselves. And I'm wondering if you, if you have found that there is, like, like I have found, that there is this kind of litany of voices that form a sort of an unconscious council of advisors that are in our minds all the time giving us advice about what we what is acceptable and what we should and shouldn't do. Absolutely. 
No, because I think from a neurobiological perspective, the way that the brain develops when you're a child, your thoughts are very black and white. Mm -hmm. And you start to build a framework because the framework is really important. It's essential to belonging. And when you're a baby, when you're a kid, uh, your belonging is just married to your sense of safety because mm -hmm. you need to belong to the people around you. Otherwise, your care uh, will be interrupted by that. So we develop that framework and we're constantly putting things into these categories. Good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. And that has everything to do with the people that we're around, our families of origin, you know, the people who are closest to us, the media that we consume. And then we're developing this, this framework and being good means belonging means being safe. Mm. And as we grow up, that emotional maturity happens where things are a little bit in the gray zone. It's no longer black and white. You know, our memories can be both happy with a tinge of sadness. We understand more complex emotions. But if we don't take stock of that framework that we've created and we just kind of continue on the path that's laid out before us, then we wake up one day with a life and it may be a perfectly lovely life, mm -hmm. but it's a life that doesn't reflect us, a life that we don't feel like we belong in. And when this happened to me, I was in my second year of grad school getting a master's in social work. You know, I was on the path doing the thing. I went to the, the good school. I took out a ton of money to go there um, I was planning my wedding to my lovely sweetheart. All of these things were happening. And I woke up and I looked at my life and it wasn't that it was a bad life at all. It was fine, for which I'm really lucky. It was kind of fine, but it wasn't mine. Mm. And I was able to see that it was set up on this idea of what it means to be good what it means to do, you know, to kind of climb the ladder. Mm -hmm. I went to my undergrad. I did well. The next rung on the ladder was find a really good grad school, get in, excel there. The next rung would have been find a really good fancy job that other people would have thought I was successful in, right? And so we build these lives based around that framework and if we don't ever stop to, to ask ourselves, yes, you know, this is good or this is bad, but is this, does this feel good to me mm. personally, then we end up with a life that looks good from the outside or looks good on Instagram and we feel lonely and we, we don't trust ourselves. We don't even know ourselves. Yeah. And so I think it's really interesting because when I came to this work in, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of the conversation was around, well, how do we get from here to self-love? And, you know, knowing that from the inside, I was like, self-love, it's like asking me to love the stranger next to me on a subway. Mm. I've never paused for five seconds to get to know myself unless it was in a negative capacity, unless it was to berate myself for not working harder. 
Um, and so to make this leap from this kind of hostile, cold relationship that I have with myself to a relationship of self-love seemed ridiculous. And so I thought, you know, there has to be another way. And so I developed this framework where, you know, I put, I put self-love on the far end of the spectrum. And instead of kind of having, you love yourself. And so then you take care of yourself and then you trust yourself and then you do all these good things for yourself. Instead, I thought about it from a, um, like relational theory perspective where it's like, how do I develop a relationship with another person? Yeah. While I show up, I want them to show up. As we both show up, that creates trust, which eventually blossoms into something that's like more like appreciation and then like love. Mm. So if I think about it in my relationship with myself, if I'm waiting for this epiphany to pop out of the sky and bop me on the head and thank God now I love myself, which really was what I was waiting for. I thought that would happen to me, Mm -hmm. that someday I would just be easier to take care of myself because someday I would just like myself and I would want to, I would be naturally motivated to care for this thing that I now liked, but I was waiting for a really long time. And I think all of my clients have been waiting for a really long time. And so if instead we start taking radical self-responsibility, we start tending to ourselves, uh, we start tending to our self-care and by self-care, I mean, you know, making the hard call, having a conversation about boundaries. Sometimes it's like taking a bath in a mountaintop, you know, vista with some some bonbons. But usually it's pulling yourself up off the floor, dusting yourself off and carrying on. Um, But if we we take this responsibility for ourselves, if we keep showing up, even when we mess up, even when we lose our way and we pick ourselves back up, we show up, we show up, we show up, then eventually we begin to trust ourselves because we've built that legacy into our relationship of like, okay, I'm not going to abandon myself even when things get hard. And I'm proving that to myself each time Mm -hmm. I pick myself up and I start again or I keep going. And that over time, that feels really good. I appreciate myself for all of my hard work. Dare I say, I even love myself for all of my hard work. and that that model works so much better than the inverse where we're waiting for this thing to happen to us. We're waiting to somehow understand something that feels fundamentally really confusing and really far away until we start taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think this is where your work is radically different to anything else I see out there is that you are saying don't wait like you can start where you are you don't have to pretend that you love yourself and fake it till you make it kind of thing you actually begin where you are and you start with how do I cultivate a relationship with myself in this difficult messy doesn't feel like me I don't even know me place totally because so often you know, I, I will have conversations with people and they'll be like, I have no idea. I have no idea what I need. I have no idea what I want. And you may have very little idea 
but it's unlikely that you have no idea. And so if we can try to reorient ourselves and start with what we know, even if it is so, so, so basic, you know, like, I like how this smells. I like how this tastes. I like how this shirt feels on my skin. I like how I feel in my body when I hear this piece of music. Any of that data can be, you know, kind of reconfigured, remastered, and then and done on purpose. Mm-hmm. When we start to put ourselves into that, that vein, we start to do those things that feel good on purpose over and over again. Then we start to, they, it blossoms. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, well, I like this person. And, you know, maybe I put that person's music into my Pandora station. And now I have you know, 10 new like artists that I can like (laughs) as a very basic (laughs) technological example. But that's what happens. Like when we start to put ourselves into that place where it's like, I like this smell and I went to go at the store and they didn't have that anymore. So I took a chance and I tried this thing that was kind of like it. Okay, well now I have two things that I like. Yeah, it's like, I love this. It's like we have to build our own algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it starts by really, really, really getting clear and and beginning with where we are and with what feels good right now. Mm. Because when you're in that place of feeling like, well, I don't know anything or it seems like the multitude of things I need to figure out are enormous, that I'm overwhelmed to a place of inaction just by thinking about all of the shit that I have to figure out. That's disempowering. (laughs) And we want to get ourselves into a place of like, well, I may not know much, but I know at least this one thing. And so I can do this one thing. Yeah. You know, right now I'm putting one drop of lemon essential oil into my face moisturizer in the morning. And if it's like, that's the thing that's holding my entire life together. I'm cool with that. It feels, I love it. It feels so good. And if I can do that one thing, then I feel like a person who can do things to take care of myself. Yeah, because I think that's that's the other, that fits into that original framework, right? That there are good things you do to take care of yourself um, and bad things are when you're not taking care of yourself. And if you're trying to unhook yourself from that binary approach to to building trust, you end up, you know, looking externally for what should I be doing? What should self my self-care look like? And it has to come from an internal place, which we are by proxy of in being in this situation in the first place, kind of it's unfamiliar territory to start trusting that putting a drop of lemon oil in your moisturizer is a good thing for you. Or the big question I find when it comes to taking care of ourselves is, is it enough? And I mean, is putting a drop of lemon oil in your moisturizer going to change your life? I mean, maybe, maybe not. But again, it's so personal. It is so personal. And so that's why we have to really reclaim that conversation about what it means to take care of ourselves and define it on our own terms. Mm. And it's like we take all of those systems, all of those voices, all of those, you know, whether it's your father's voice or it's 
the you know dominant narrative of the teen magazine you consumed while you were a kid or whatever other people's voices asking for opinions from your friends on Facebook when we take all of that off of the pedestal and we put our own voice and opinion on the pedestal instead it's not that we are living you know somehow entering into this utopian world where none of that other stuff matters anymore of course it still exists and you may still really 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 care what other people think i know i do i care what other people think but i don't care about what other people think more than i care what i think mm. And so when we're able to do that and we're able to bounce things through our own filtration system, you know, I do a lot of work with boundaries and I kind of think about, yeah, this is boundary work too, right? The boundary is this border around me and I get to choose when I open the gate. And so, you know, if you sass who I know and love dearly say like, Hey, I think you've got it wrong on this. I'm going to open that gate because I know and I love you and, you know, we've been friends for a long time and I trust you and the legacy of our relationship is strong. Mm. But I'm not, if somebody, a random person on the streets tells me that I look fat, who's that person to me? Am I going to open the gate for that opinion? Mm. You know, and so that part of building this self-trust and part of building this relationship with ourselves is that we are teaching ourselves how to make our primary allegiance be to ourselves. Even if our secondary allegiance is to everyone else, that's, I mean, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. But the primary allegiance has to be to ourselves. And again, that's not something that we just all of a sudden know how to do. It's something that we practice. It's, you know, sometimes I remind myself of that a hundred times a day. Mm. Like me first, me first, me first. Does that make sense to me? Is that how, does that feel good to me? Is this what I want for me? Mm. Like that's great for them. Does that work for me? You know, bouncing all questions back to me. Well, and I'm reminded of, you know, one of the first times we actually hung out together in person because we've been online friends for a super long time. And it was this really lovely experience of having permission to say actually that doesn't work for me and we kind of practiced that with each other I was like can I just say that isn't going to work for me (laughs) and and I think that's kind of the relationship that I now have with myself and I think when we first met we were both kind of like figuring this out and how does that actually get internalized Um, but I love it when you meet someone who understands that not everything is an automatic yes because someone's suggested something or, or asked for it. Um, just being able to play with questioning, how does that feel? Even if you agree to something that you don't really want to do, the first step is checking in. How does that feel to me? Do I want to do this? And being kind of conscious that even if I am making a choice to do something I don't want to do, that I have, I have started this process of checking in and that's kind of the first step. No, Seth, I love it. I always talk about you when I'm teaching because, <laughs> because I just remember, you know, it would be like, I would want you to do, <laughs> to do something and I would be like, Seth, okay, how about we do this? And you'd just be like, no, it's not going to work for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I would be like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. I really wanted her to do that. Like, yeah. <laughs> that worked for me. 
But what is amazing, first of all, you have impeccable boundaries, which I love about you. But the second thing is, is that what it really taught me from the inside is like, wow, okay, look, this is what it is like to tolerate my own disappointment. Yeah, I'm not dead. I wanted her to do something. She said no. I still love her. Everything's fine. And if that's true, maybe I can say no when I want to say no. And I can allow other people to tolerate their disappointment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I think that that's something that keeps people from being able to take care of themselves, from being able to say no when they want to, is that the the prospect of people being disappointed in them is completely unraveling. But the truth is, for most people in our lives, they can get upset. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like We're still allowed to ask for what we need. We're still allowed to say, no, that doesn't work for me. We're still allowed to be ourselves, that there can be that moment of, wow, I really wanted you to do that. And you said no. I'm like, cool. I'm going to like deal with this for for this moment of frustration. And we're going to get on with it. Yeah. And, and the, the relationship expands to hold disappointment. Absolutely. I'm sort of developing this idea that I think, you know, fear gets a ton of press, right? Fear is the biggie. Everyone's like talking about fear. I think we need to start talking about disappointment because I actually think that that is the, one of the least tolerable emotions. Certainly I have found with myself and my clients disappointment is the thing that most of us find really really hard to be with Mm -hmm. both disappointing others and being disappointed ourselves and my sense is that this comes from that feeling of what you were talking about earlier this idea that we need to belong and belong because belonging is safety And one of the things that we risk when we say no or we risk disappointing someone um, is that we no longer feel that we belong or we risk feeling separate in some way. Absolutely. And until we really feel into the fact that by sacrificing ourselves in order to belong, we are refusing to belong to ourselves every time. Bingo. And that's the loneliness. It's like that feeling of I'm surrounded by people who I'm, I allegedly love and I feel totally alone. Um, if we don't belong to ourselves, we don't belong anywhere because mm. we carry that feeling of not belonging in our skin. Mm-hmm. But it's really scary. You're absolutely right. It's really scary. And the threat of disappointment is huge, um, both internal and external. You know, I think that both of us talk a lot about resiliency and that ability to tolerate disappointment is what builds resiliency, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah. You know, that that when we're able to um, tolerate our own disappointment and when we're able to give people space to tolerate their disappointment in us, that 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 it is okay for us to say no and for somebody to feel frustrated without the world ending. Yeah, I think my relationship with disappointment, like being able to just be disappointed or be disappointing, that for me is one of the the pillars of my current status as recovering people pleaser. Mm-hmm. Because I think that was what I was really doing when I was pleasing other people, was I've always had these quite acute 
empathy nodes, neurons, whatever we want to call them. And I think the shadow side of the of that well-developed empathy can look like people-pleasing. Mm-hmm. And I think it was partly about never wanting to disappoint someone, always wanting to feel like I was likable and I and therefore I belonged. Yeah. All the while sacrificing that belonging to yourself. Yeah, and I and I think that's the that's the kind of double bind that we end end up in, isn't it? That something has to be sacrificed here for neither of us to be disappointed. Disappointed. It may as well be me because then I can I kind of know who I am in that. Yeah. Well, and some of us, <laughs> I'll raise my hand, get like a perverse <laughs> satisfaction out of being really good at doing. It's like I'm well. Well, I can take it. So I, yeah. And on the one hand, it's, I, I want to, um, spare other people from feeling any amount of discomfort, but on the other hand, it is a facet of my self-belief that I am a person who is good at dealing with those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I get really wrapped up in there. And, you know, when we start to extradite ourselves, we have to be really conscious of like, wow, Okay. Yeah, I am a person who is really good at doing hard things. That doesn't mean I have to be the person who does the hard things all the time. Because I, you know, I don't, I don't just want to be the person who does hard things. I also want to be the person who laughs and allows other people to support her. And those things can coexist, but they can't. There's no space for that if I'm working really, 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 really hard to earn my spot, to protect other people from feeling their feelings, and to to have everyone like me. Mm. You know, I think that when we make that shift from being like externally validated to being internally validated to really trusting ourselves, then we're able to belong to ourselves and to the world at the same time. And what gets sacrificed is the idea that absolutely everyone is going to like us. Yeah. And it's a, I mean, it's a hard pill. It's like, this is, it's a hard pill for me to swallow (laughs) even today. Uh, You know, I, I hate it when I know that some, that I'm not for someone, that someone doesn't like me and my super triggers are like, prefer somebody easier than me. Right. Mm. Um, But the truth of the matter is I'm not a particularly easy human. I never have been. And the more true that I can be to myself, the more that I can prioritize my own uh, sense of self, then the more able I am not only to belong to myself, but also to belong to the people who are around me. I can be more present in my relationships. I can be loved for who I actually am instead of who I think that you want me to be in order to be lovable. And that is such a cure for that feeling of terminal loneliness that so many of us carry around. But it runs the risk that we're going to be who we really are. We're going to show up as ourselves and somebody's going to say, yeah, not for me. That's, and that's the pits, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the pits. And, and you know, you and I have both had that happen, right? Oh, where yeah. we've kind of done our work <laughs> and, and kind of got to the place where we're like, you know what, I, I'm kind of, I'm down with me now. You know, this is me and I'm good. And then someone who you really love and care about and feel really close to and you have allowed in to that circle of trust to see who you really are 
they see you and then say, not for me. It hurts. I mean, that stings. Mm -hmm. And yet, it is better, I have found. Well, since I've just refused to become a sort of twisted parody of myself so that I can kind of become the person that other people need me to be or I think they need me to be, it is still, I think, a better kind of pain <laughs> to be rejected for who you really are than for who you never were. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is there's nothing worse than that, actually, than twisting yourself up into knots, sacrificing everything that you are and being rejected anyway. And I mean, that does happen. That happens all the time. Yeah, I call that period my 20s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I feel like that's where I do come down to on this issue more often than not is that if I'm going to be rejected, if, if I'm not going to be for someone, if that if I'm going to feel that hurt, I at least want whatever it is that I do, whatever it is that I say, however it is that I dress, however it is I show up to be really in energetic integrity for me. I want to be able to stand behind it. Well, and then when when that inevitable rejection happens, right? Because that's kind of we're all growing at different places and, and different in different ways. And so someone who's in our lives for a long time can still grow we can still grow apart. But if there is no home that you belong to that's within yourself, there's no home to return to to tend to yourself in that period of grief. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the sense of loneliness is exacerbated when we have no sense of belonging to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's the pits. <laughs> it's the pits anyway, right? You may as well be able to go home figuratively to somewhere that you do feel that you belong, where you do feel safe. Right. And it is. I mean, it is. It's the worst. And I think, but I'm so glad that we're talking about it because first of all, there's this perception that this is the kind of thing that happens to some people and not to all people, you know, and that we believe like, oh, well, this would never, you know, like maybe I'm sitting in my house thinking like, well, Sass has never been rejected because Sass is brilliant and perfect and wonderful and she has great hair and everyone loves her. Um, Stop it. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like when we have these conversations, then for everyone listening, it's like you get to hear We've been rejected many times and it hurts. This happens to everybody. It normalizes the experience of it. We're still, (laughs) we've lived to say that it's still worth the risk. Well, and I have found um, even in our own friendship, when we'll go months without chatting to each other and I'll see you doing amazing stuff on Instagram and I will feel that kind of gut clutch of, are we still okay? And it's a it's a lovely reminder, right? Whenever I kind of touch base with you or you do the same and it's like, are we good? How are you doing? I'm watching you expand and grow and I'm feeling this sense of separation and I need some reassurance from you. Absolutely. I mean, but starting with the fact that our entire friendship from my, my uh, perspective is based in the fact that I was sitting in my house when you got your very first new fancy website. And I was like refreshing your page, refreshing your page. Like, well, this person, I mean, like, is she perfect? She's perfect. (laughs) Her website's like so perfect. Everything about her is so perfect. It's so must be so nice to be sass. Everything's so wonderful over there. And I was just embroiled 
in comparison and jealousy. And it's so great because at that time I had this secret project that I was doing, which was whenever I felt that way about somebody, I would just reach out to them and say, (laughs) Hey, I think I want to be your friend. Um, and which I did and we did become friends. And I just think that it's like that humanness too, right? Like we can, we can feel things that aren't necessarily pretty. And this is what builds self-trust. You know, we can feel things that aren't really pretty. We can be with ourselves. I saw some funny meme before we got on the call that was like, you know, one, a variation of, if you don't love me at my worst, then you, then you have no business loving me at my best. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same. It's the same in our relationship with ourselves. We have to be there and not abandon ourselves completely. Whether we're like mucked down in refreshing somebody's feed over and over and over again because we just can't stand how wonderful and perfect we are and how bad we feel about ourselves. Um, or we're standing, you know, on top of the mountain feeling great about ourselves and having a perfect day. We have to have our own back regardless. And I love that our friendship has grown over the last decade or however long it's been, where there is room for that. Like, you know, we've both seen each other at our worst and at our best, and it has been all the richer and deeper because there is that spectrum. Well, and that's exactly that is for me why it's worth the risk to show the world who I truly am. Yeah. Because it opens the space for having a friendship like ours. Yeah. You know, and not, not just, it's like my, my relationship with my partner, my relationship with my child. It's like, it, it allows us to be known and loved as we are. And it's worth the risk. Even if a, if a potential rejection or an actual rejection feels enormous. Just hearing you describe this, the thing that's coming up for me is that it is the best known cure for imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Because there's just nothing to find out. I think when we can do that, when we can tell ourselves that ferocious truth, you can then get curious about what it's like on the other side, that we're not hiding from ourselves anymore. Mm-hmm. And it kind of builds that resilience to be able to then let someone else in to see that truth too. Yeah, and that we can trust ourselves to be accurate reporters. I mean, I think that one of the major reasons why we put other people's opinions and other people, you know, like the kind of world at large, the systems at large that we are playing in all the time on that pedestal is because we believe somehow that they are more just and accurate reporters than we are. Yeah. And that we can't be trusted to tell ourselves the truth. And we may not feel well practiced in telling ourselves the truth. Maybe we never really have done it before. And maybe we don't yet know how to do that in a way that is coming from a place of curiosity and self-support and kindness, you know, that we can we can be honest with ourselves um, and that can be kind, by which I don't mean that we're wrapping up all of our shitty thoughts in a pretty pink bow and pretending like everything's fine. I mean, really telling ourselves the truth, but 
doing it with love. Like, hey, I'm not good at this thing. But the reality is one human can't be expected to be good at everything. So I don't necessarily take it personally, even if it might make me feel sad or I might wish that I were better at it. But, you know, this one thing doesn't mean everything about me as a human being, you know, past, present and future. Yeah. And we can we can cultivate that. And we don't even really need to be taught it. I mean, obviously, I I do teach it. Um, <laughs> but mostly because I feel like it's something that people feel it brings up so many emotions that it's amazing place to receive support. Yeah. But I don't believe that I know a way of doing it that's better than your way. And instead, you know, I really do this work to support people with all of the emotions that show up when they find their own way. Because it can feel lonely, it can bring up grief, it can bring up like tender excitement that you want somebody to be cheering with you, but you don't feel safe yet telling most of the people in your life about it, you know? And so starting to have conversations with ourselves every single day by saying, you know, like, what do I need? What's true for me? You know, maybe I don't know everything, but what do I know? What's a starting place for me right now that you can have those conversations for free with yourself right now. You don't have to, you don't need anyone smarter or better or more expensive than you, right? Like this has to do with really reclaiming that sovereignty. And that's just a muscle. I'm so happy to share your stuff with the world. Thank you for having me. It is always a total treat to talk to you and such a treat to hang out with all of your listeners for a little bit of time. I'm so honored to be here. You can see the show notes for this episode by going to courageandspice.com and you can subscribe, rate and review Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, folks. I'll see you next time.